A lot of kids up here today. I love it. <clears throat> um, our scripture reading is from Acts 21, 37 to 22, 29. It's a long one. Bear with me. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, May I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus and Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I'm a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus, to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me, and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? 
When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, But I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. The word of God for the people of God. Thank you, Aaron. Children, have fun with Josh. Please open in your Bibles to Acts chapter 22. Uh, Actually, we're going to be at the end of 21, verses 37 through 40, and then uh, most of uh, 22 through verse 29. I want to thank Wim for filling in for me last minute uh, on Sunday. Natalie walked into the kitchen at 6.30 and said, we're having this baby today. Uh, You need to call someone to preach. And Wim, fortunately, we planned ahead because we're responsible around here. And he had prepared a wonderful sermon, so I went and listened to it. It was beautifully done. You definitely shared the gospel with everyone, and I really appreciate that. And it was well articulated, so thank you for helping us out. We went to um, Baby Co., Baby Boutique, and uh, had our baby, uh, our baby Henry. And we're just enjoying being with him and Thank you for all the prayers. Thank you for the meals and the support. We feel so loved and supported by our community. It's, it's amazing. So um, thank you from the bottom of our hearts. Natalie, can't wait to uh, be back here. Uh, we're going to give Huck a couple weeks before he steps into a Jeremy school and uh, church. So um, he'll be here soon and feel free to come over to meet him. Uh, two weeks ago, Uh, I was up here and we transitioned uh, in the book of Acts from Paul on his three missionary journeys where he's going all around the known world sharing the gospel to um, moving into this, the end of Acts and the end of his life really where he goes to these five different trials and God has appointed him to uh, bear witness to who he is publicly in in the political realm and in these religious groups. Um, through uh, opposition and um, difficulty and suffering, God is using uh, these situations for Paul to be a beacon of light in the community. And this week we pick up at the end of the passage from two weeks ago where Paul is falsely accused and arrested, nearly beaten to death by the Jews who claimed Paul had broken the law by bringing a Gentile into the temple courtyard, which he actually hadn't done. They just accused him of that because they wanted a reason to get rid of him. And that was a crime punishable by death. So he's sitting here under very serious charges, uh, being abused and mistreated unjustly. And today we find Paul outside the temple, having been arrested by the Roman guard. And surprisingly, I found this to be quite shocking. I don't know if you did when you were hearing it being read. He's requesting to speak to the angry mob. So there's a lot for us to learn here in this request and in his defense about suffering about defending the gospel in a hostile culture and being prepared to do so, living for God's glory alone, which I believe is what we were made for, and about the power of our words. So let's pray and we'll dig in. Lord, I do thank you for passages like this that uh, remind me of how comfortable my life is in comparison to what uh, Paul and others have had to go through for you. Uh, Lord, I pray, raise us up out of our apathy. Put us in situations where we are utterly dependent upon you, where our suffering is our witness, uh, where we are fashioned into sharp instruments into your hand. Give us hope. 
as we're all battling our different struggles, give us hope that those struggles just produce perseverance, and perseverance produces character, and character produces hope, and a hope that will not disappoint. We thank you for the, that, that in your economy, in your kingdom, uh, we are given that kind of hope. In Jesus' name, amen. So I would be remiss if I did not mention that um, the Kentucky Wildcats are 5-0. <laughs> no one else seems... Very excited about that. Ah, oh, Jonah. Go Cats. Yeah, Aaron's excited. Thank you. Um, we're 5-0 and for the first time in my lifetime since 1977. Let's pray. <laughs> um, no, it is, it's miraculous. Um, and uh, it's, uh, it's fun to watch. Um, and as I was watching my Cats uh, stun the world again with another victory, 3-0 in the SEC. They beat South Carolina last night. You know, I'm, I'm high on emotion probably helped that Micah brought me a bottle of bourbon uh, to celebrate, and I'm feeling emotional, and uh, this State Farm commercial comes on TV. I don't know if you all have seen this on the SEC Network, but it's, it's actually pretty touching. It's really well done. Um, and the commercial is just a slow-moving shot of an ancient tree. Some of you all may know about this tree. I don't know about it. Uh, of a tree in Johns Island, South Carolina, you know, where the storm hit. And it's the narrator with his deep foreboding voice, uh, and he says this, this is the angel oak, or simply the tree to locals. Some say it's the oldest living thing east of the Mississippi. For the last 500 years, it's weathered more than we will ever know. Floods, lightning, and hurricanes, battered and broken. It stands for the resilience within us all. Carolinas, we are humbled by your strength, and we are here to help. Cue tear. Um, I, I felt a little teary watching that, um, and as I was putting the finishing touches on my sermon, I couldn't get that image out of my head, and I started to wonder why I was thinking so much about that, and I think it's because I've been looking at Paul all week, or for two weeks now. He's the resilient tree. He's the, the, the man of Psalm 1, planted and rooted by streams of living water, and it is inspiring to watch him battered and broken, standing for righteousness and for the name of God in the face of unimaginable opposition. I'm humbled by his strength. And I look at him and I think, I want to be a man who is rooted like he is. A man who has a voice. A man who can defend even as he's battered and bloodied. You know, I want to set the scene here a little bit because I think it's important to emphasize the terrifying circumstances that Paul, Paul finds himself in in front of this bloodthirsty Jewish mob. So it's easy to get lost on us in a quick reading, but here's the deal. Paul's all alone. Having been beaten within an inch of his life, he's bloodied, he's battered, he's abused, he's spit on, he's punched, he's kicked. He's being threatened to literally be torn apart via flogging. Now, flogging are these whips, you know, with metal pieces and glass on the end that when they strike you with it, it rips the skin off your flesh. It exposes your organs. It goes deep. This is not just a whipping or a spanking. This is something that costs many people their lives. And this is what Paul is being threatened with. But fortunately, even though Paul has no way to physically defend himself, he's been delivered by the Romans, which is ironic because the Romans are the ones who are going to eventually execute him. But in this particular moment, by God's providence, he is delivered by the Roman guard who, in order to protect him, arrest him, 
and they are bringing him in for interrogation. And what Paul does here, the more I looked at it, the more I thought about it, how remarkable it is what he does here, it, it brought me to tears as I was writing my sermon, sitting in the safe confines of my office, uh, realizing how terrifying it would be to have to risk my life to share my own story uh, in this kinds of situation. So I want to examine the beauty, the courage, the fortitude of Paul by unpacking the story in three parts. So let's look at Paul's request, then Paul's defense, and the people's response. First, Paul's request is just in these few, first few verses in 37 through 40 of chapter 21. At this point, Paul has completely surrendered his life to living for the glory of God. That is his primary purpose, and he knows it, and he'll do whatever it takes. And he views every opportunity that he has, no matter how difficult it is, no matter how painful it is, he looks at it as an opportunity that God has given for him to share his life. When he was saved on the Damascus Road, that's what God told him he was going to be about. He was going to go from murdering Christians to giving his life to see that they're saved. And Paul is ready. As he told his friends just a few uh, chapters earlier, I do not count my life of any value. Nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Is that your mission? Do you resonate with those words? It's a good time for us to do some heart interrogation as I found myself asking myself some healthy questions this week. What value do you give your life? What is it worth? Where is it headed? What is the goal? What makes you consider it successful or unsuccessful? Is it the amount of sales? Is it the amount of cuts? Is it the amount of clients? The number in your bank account? What are you pursuing? Is it all working to make much of you or to make much of God? And what would it look like if it did serve to make much of God first and foremost. And all that you do, from the design to the writing to the sale, those are healthy questions to interrogate our hearts with. What is it that's giving your life value right now? Your bank account, the size of your house, your car, perfectly manicured lawn, your job. For me, it's sidewalks. I just want sidewalks. I would feel like I've, my life is worth something and I could show off where I live because I have sidewalks and I don't have sidewalks. And so I feel ashamed of that. I'm being serious, I really do. Like that's how shallow it gets for me sometimes. My in-laws are coming to stay with us for two weeks and I'm like, we don't have sidewalks, they have sidewalks. Um, you know, for Paul, what's giving his life value and worth is the joy and the glory of God, experiencing the joy and the glory of God. Even in the face of these kinds of circumstances. And what makes Paul ready for this extraordinary moment is not his 401k. It's his obedience to the will of God. That's why someone like Paul can find himself in an extraordinary circumstance and be absolutely ready in the midst of chaos. He's the one guy who's under control in this situation. And imagine the awe-inspiring courage. He's bloodied, he's battered, and he politely begs for permission to speak to this angry mob. Now, when you think about that, put yourself in his shoes. Let's say I said something up here that was so offensive to you all that you just lynched me, mobbed me right now, drug me outside of the school, 
beat me within an inch of my life. I'm sitting out there in the parking lot, bloodied and battered. You all want to flog me and stone me. You're, you're yelling angry insults at me. And all I want to do is shut you up so I can tell you about Jesus. Okay, my reaction to that would be, get me the heck out of here. I want a hospital bed. I want the police. And I want to get these crazy lunatics out of here. And I don't ever want to see you again. I would feel so abused, so unjustly treated, so terrified that the last thing in the world I would want to do is gather your attention so I could tell you something good. But Paul knows, because he's been changed by the gospel, exactly what's going on here. That God is preparing these people and himself for a moment where he can share the most powerful weapon he has, his own story. Paul's going to share his testimony of what happened to him on the Damascus Road. He does this again later in Acts 26. This is his go-to. It's your go-to as well, Christian. Do you have a story to tell? When you're facing opposition, when you're in your workplace, when you're sitting in a cup of coffee or a beer with someone who doesn't know the good news of the gospel, what's your weapon of choice? Is it your intelligence and your persuasion? Is it your, your, un, your, your, um, your arguments, your well-articulated arguments? Or is it your story? It's amazing to me that that's what Paul goes to here. That's his weapon of choice. And interestingly, when Paul speaks to Lysias, who is the tribune here, Lysias is impressed by Paul's educated tongue, it says. He takes notice that Paul speaks fluent Greek, which he's surprised by, and he assumes that Paul's actually this former Egyptian freedom fighter and terrorist who had just been in the city years earlier, gathered a group of people together, took them out in the wilderness, waited for, told them that they had a vision for that the walls of Jerusalem were going to fall and that they were going to take over the city. That obviously never happened. They thought this was this crazy lunatic who was coming back into the city to you know, start a riot or whatever, gather people for his, his crazed cause. But Paul is no religious fanatic. He was not too ignorant to know any better. Paul is a well-educated, well-articulated, balanced, rational man in this situation. So he's not crazy. And Lysias asked Paul, Are you not the Egyptian who recently stirred up a revolt and led 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness to wait for the walls of Jerusalem to miraculously fall down? And Paul quickly dispels the mistaken identity, telling Lysias he's actually a Jew from Tarsus, a citizen of no obscure city. How ironic that Lysias doesn't know who Paul is and Paul's got the name that's going to be remembered for eternity, for all of history. And he's the unidentified man here. And yet Paul doesn't boast or name drop. He humbles himself to beg for permission to share the gospel with people who want to murder him. That's remarkable. And I want to slow that down just to sit in that of what's going on because you probably just read right through that. Like I did. And just when you think Paul's down and out, he rises to the occasion beyond belief by supernatural power within him, living for something greater than the rest of us, to tell the people one thing that will save all of their lives and cost him his. Why would Paul want to talk to these people? It's 
because he knew what man meant for evil, God uses for good. He knew the promises of God, and his chief aim is to glorify God through his suffering, and this is prime time for him to do that. Is that how you view your own suffering? God had saved him on the Damascus Road for such a time as this, and Paul wasn't going to let it go to waste. He knew his days were numbered, and he was going to make them count for something, which leads us to our second point, which is the gist of this passage, Paul's defense. And as I read this, I couldn't help but think of uh, Peter's words, uh, be in, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. So you know this truth. This truth has set you free. It's reoriented you to a different value system, to pursue different things, to find your worth in something different. How are you going to share this with people? Again, I go back to, to his story. That's his defense. Look, guys, I used to be like you, and this has changed me. You yourself know what I used to live for. You saw it, and now something is different, and I don't want to live for those, anything, those things anymore. You have to be asking yourself, what happened? I'll tell you what happened. I met Jesus, and it reoriented everything, changed his whole worldview. You know, Peter right there is actually writing to these, des- these, um, these Jews who've been dispersed all over the known world because of the persecution of Nero. Nero's actually the, the emperor who's going to uh, execute Paul. And they're spread out, and he's giving them hope amidst uh, their own persecution and oppression that they're facing all over the known world. Um, and he's writing to tell them how they, they could live as those who've been delivered from darkness into light as Christian exiles in a foreign land. He's explaining to them a strange truth in God's economy that those who suffer for righteousness' sake will be blessed. So that sounds really good. That sounds like a great Hallmark card. Those who suffer for righteousness' sake will be blessed. But you really need to do business with that and unpack that. Or I need to unpack it for you. How in the world would God say, it seems a bit contradictory to say, as you suffer, you will be blessed. Does it seem like Paul's being blessed here? Here's what you need to know. A little secret, just between us. The opposite of blessing is not suffering. Suffering is not the opposite of blessing. So to be blessed is to be shown God's favor, given his ultimate, ultimate protection. Paul's vulnerable. He's not protected here physically. The opposite of blessing is God's disapproval. It's for him to be not before you as he is for Paul here. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, blessed are you when others insult you. You are blessed because in standing for Jesus, God is pleased with you. He's showing his favor for Paul. And Paul says he rejoices in suffering. What does that mean? He's not a guy that, like, if you walked up to him and punched him in the face, he smiles back and says, thank you. That's not what he's talking about. He's saying, oh, I see purpose to turn the other cheek. I see purpose to stand for something that you don't stand for. I see purpose that in my suffering, my life can mean something and communicate something totally countercultural to what other people believe. It can stand for something that is eye-opening, that is life-changing. 
for Paul to rejoice in his suffering, it means he sees God most clearly in his suffering. He knows God is most real when he is most dependent upon him and he is delivering him in these, and giving him words and providing and meeting his promises and using his suffering for good. Because in persecution, we as Christians find opportunity to acquaint ourselves with Jesus. Peter goes on to say, if we suffer for righteousness sake, then we will be blessed. To be blessed by God's favor creates joy and satisfaction as that we can only find in relationship to God. And in Christ, we no longer have to fear persecution and people hating us. Peter is concerned with people allowing fear to keep them from doing good and pursuing righteousness. And he says we use our tongues to repay evil with good, to bless, to encourage and build up and give peace to others. That's the most powerful weapon we have. That is Paul's weapon here that he uses to fight back and defend himself. We just read from Psalm 32, Psalm 34. Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. What are you using your tongue for? Are you bringing life or are you bringing death? Because it has that kind of power. I mean, think about it. For God to communicate to us for all time, what did he give us? His words. Right? This. That's what he chose. This was his instrument to change the world. He gave us words. He gave us his presence, but he gives us his eternal presence through his living word. That's insane. And it's awesome. Because it's well beyond anything we could have thought of. To be blessed is not to be monetarily prosperous or to be healthy. By good days, Peter means days with purpose. Days the Lord is at work in us, blessing others. A life living in tune with the Spirit, seeking to be a blessing to others, serving our neighbors, showing grace to all. That's what it is to be blessed. That's what it is to use your suffering to be blessed. And besides blessing others and repaying evil with good, Peter gives us another powerful way we can use our tongues to make a defense for anyone who asks for the reason for the hope that's in us. We can use our tongues to profess the greatest news the world has ever known. We can use our tongues to be gospelers, to proclaim Christ's victory. Is that something you're equipped to do? What does your defense look like? Paul would later say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of salvation to all who believes. He would say, faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Everything we do towards our mission of making disciples at Flat Rock is being done for redemptive ends. We want to do what we do so we can tell people with our tongues about the good news of the gospel. It is not enough to just set the example or to just live like Jesus. That is a good and noble thing to do, but that is not how people are going to hear the gospel. They're not going to see you serving poor people and be like, Jesus died for my sins, and he rose from the grave. They need to hear it. Now, if you going and serving the homeless and helping people in need provides that opportunity for you to do that, then we would say that is an ultimate redemptive end, and we should do those things. And it's not that we shouldn't do those things if it's not for a redemptive end. We would say those things are good. And we would, we, would, we would applaud those things. But we would say for the church, our mission is to put ourselves in situations where we build relationships to tell people that they might hear the good news. Many of us are just okay with, well, I'm trying to be a good example. That's good. Keep trying to be a good example. But at some point, you're going to have to have the boldness to speak the words. 
And I hope in our feast groups we're equipping people to do that. I also hope in our feast groups we're challenging each person in our feast group to consider at least one person you can make a disciple of. One person in your life. And if you're sitting there this, this morning and you're like, I'm not a disciple, I don't follow Jesus, then we would hope that Flat Rock is a place where you can learn to follow Jesus and learn what that means. And that our feast groups are a place where you can be trained to understand what it is to make disciples, to tell other people your story, that they might learn to follow Jesus. And that you would challenge yourself that in our feast groups, that our church would, would grow and expand via conversion, via you sharing your story with someone else and praying about at least one person in this whole year of all of 2018 you can share your story with. So if you're listening to this and you're feeling discouraged and ashamed because you're not like Paul, as I am not either, and maybe you're, you're a failure in your making a defense, your ability to make a defense, you need to know that God promises to give us all things, as Wim has said a couple times this morning, pertaining to life and godliness through the power of His Spirit. This is all about our union with Christ. We're not doing this alone. Paul is not doing this by his own strength. He is united to Christ. Paul Tripp, one of my favorite authors and counselors, has some encouraging words about this. He says this, What is godliness? It's a God-honoring life between the time I come to Christ and the time I go home to be with Him. And Christ has already given me everything I need for it. Yes, we face the harsh realities of life in a fallen world, and yes, we still struggle with indwelling sin, but because of my relationship with Christ, I've been given a warrior spirit that lives inside of me. He fights on my behalf and enables me to produce good fruit, faith, virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. Listen, it's not enough for us to believe in life after death. That's not what saves you. We need to start believing in life before death. If we understand our identity that we've been given in Christ, we can live filled with hope and courage. Christ has not just forgiven you. He has completely and fundamentally changed who you are. And because of that, you can live in a very new and different way. If you remember that in your marriage, if you remember that in your job, if you remember that as you face the situations and relationships of life, it will make a tremendous difference in the way that you live. You'll begin to produce new and surprising fruit, and you'll be used by God to help others remember their identity as well. Paul, in his defense, respects these people. He says, brothers and fathers. He relates to them, saying, I know what it's like. I know how you feel. That would be completely disarming for these people, like nothing they've ever heard. He doesn't want to hurt them. He doesn't want to fight against them. He doesn't want to get revenge. He wants to love them. And he deconstructs their arguments that he is somehow anti-Jewish by saying he is more Jewish than any of them. No one needs to tell him how to be Jewish. He was raised to be Jewish. And all of it is going well as he has their attention until the very end when he says, now I've told you this good news that Jesus has come as the Messiah that you've been waiting for and he saved me and he's going to save you and he changed my life and he can change your life. But it's not just for you guys. It's also for the Gentiles. And it's interesting that at, up to that point, they have his, he has their full attention. And then he says the word Gentiles, and it all goes to heck. As this, the serotonin's not rising up in their brain, and the anger is just stewing, and they're becoming red in the face, and they just want to tear them limb from limb. So you're telling me, you just shared this great news, we're all excited about it, and you're telling me it's also for these other dirty, stinky Gentiles? 
So all of their nationalism and their racism and all the deep-seated sin in them comes to the surface. So here's the deal. If you're expecting to share your story and every time you share it, someone's just going to be like, oh, that's awesome. Go, Jesus. I'm for him. That's not going to probably happen. Now, that might happen. Praise God if it does. But what's probably going to happen is you're going to start to hit nerves. You're going to start to challenge people's worth and their value systems and where they're finding their satisfaction. And most people don't react well to that. And that's what keeps us from doing most of the evangelism that we do in the American church. We're afraid of this, re- this response. And it's okay to fear it. That fear is healthy. No one wants to be torn apart limb from limb and be flogged. But think about what we're fearful of. We live in such an easily offended culture, you're just afraid someone's going to say, I don't believe that. And you're just like, I don't, I don't, oh, I don't know what to say. You don't believe it? Oh, okay. Or they're going to give you that, well, I just think, you know, you can believe what you want, and you can believe what you want, and it all leads to the same road. And you're going to say, yeah, that's a foolproof argument. Do you know how to deconstruct? Do you know how to enter into those kinds of questions and those kinds of uh, those other belief systems? So you look at their response, and it says, up to this point, they listened to him, then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. All he said was, this is just not for you, it's for everybody. You shouldn't be allowed to live for saying that. And as they were shouting and throwing, imagine this, as they're shouting and throwing, they're, they're, they're running towards him, flinging their clothes off, because they want to murder him flinging them into the air to rush the stage and mob him, the tribune ordered Paul to be brought into the barracks, saying, and this is their bright idea, okay, this isn't working, let's flog him. And Paul, interestingly, makes, he makes a very interesting play here because Paul's not afraid of flogging. He's been flogged five times before this. Five times. But yet, he appeals to his Roman citizenship to deliver him from this situation. Because, you know what's interesting? Paul can't stand injustice, and neither should you. He knows what they're doing is wrong. He knows it's a false accusation. He knows Roman citizens aren't aren't supposed to be tortured, that they're not supposed to be uh, taken under arrest for accusations from non-citizens. So he uses his citizenship to keep his voice and his tongue alive so so he can continue to share a story, so he can continue to share the gospel. And the man who's standing over him, Lysias, is surprised that he was born into into this. So suffering for Paul is necessary. But Paul is no masochist. If he could avoid it for justice sake, then he would. Paul knew it would spare his voice and his witness. He challenges unlawful use of power. He doesn't always demand his rights, but but self-interest and comfort were not his priorities. That's not why he does this. It was God's glory and the promotion of the gospel that he lived for. And he asserts his rights and demands justice when it's for the promotion of Jesus. And it's not loving to let someone sin against you. As Christians called to repay evil with good and love our enemies, that doesn't mean we roll over when we're being sinned against. We still stand for justice for God's namesake. We don't empower people for injustice. We still confront evil. We just do it with different motives and manners. We don't need to make it easy for people to sin against us or act as enablers. We can use our voice and our tongues and demand justice. God is honored by justice being served. We speak up, not for revenge or payback, but for God's glory and honor. And I'll close with this. Last Sunday, 
one of the best days of my life, right? Seeing your kids being born is absolutely amazing. Natalie is a warrior princess woman. She is stunning in labor. It is remarkable going into that situation. I'm more nervous than she is. She's like kind of semi-excited about it, I think. Um, she knows the pain is coming. She knows it's going to be the worst pain she's ever experienced in her life. She's ready for that. She's prepared herself for it. I'm walking in nervous. I just want to be there for her. I just want to provide hope. I just want to provide peace and comfort for her. She, she writes this list. It's almost like a dialogue that I'm supposed to have with her, like a, like a script that I'm supposed to follow. I follow the script to a T. I'm still nervous. Finally, we get six hours in. She's laboring in a tub. She's laboring in every position you could possibly imagine, which is just mind-blowing. And this is too much information. And she would probably be so embarrassed if she was here. So that's probably not good. Um, but she's, she's just fighting, right? She's battling. And, I, and if, like, if you don't believe in God after you watch a child be born, then I, I don't know what's going to make you believe in him. Um, it's a miraculous process. And then if you don't have respect for your spouse after watching them give labor, then you're, you're done for. Because it's just remarkable to see this. She goes through all this pain. I'm sitting in the bed. I'm holding a leg because I'm a good husband. You know, I can at least hold a leg, but I can't watch. And I'm looking up like this. And she's just fighting and battling. And then the midwife keeps saying, she's, he's almost here, he's almost here. Like two hours later, you're like, you got to stop saying that until he's like really here because you're getting my hopes up. And so he finally comes out. I, man, that is like the greatest relief. Not only just for me, but obviously especially for your wife. But just seeing her going through that unimaginable pain that I will never experience in my life. For the joy of holding that baby boy. And right when he came out, I just lost it. Like, I've been, I've been praying for the gift of tears, and I was given that gift. Amen. And the, the, ner- the midwife even looked at me like, you've the, like, been so composed this whole time. Like, wh- what happened? Um, and it was just this incredible sense of relief. And then he couldn't breathe. He didn't transition well. And it, we had to call in NICU that was pretty scary and nerve-wracking and, and everyone's trying to act calm even though it's not. Same thing happened to Lucy. And finally, he's able to breathe and now he couldn't cry. And I never thought I'd beg God to let me hear my son cry. And now, which is really cool, he cries and I'm thinking, this is awesome. And I, I hope I can, I hope that can, can, can stay. But you, you realize in that moment, that all the pain and the struggle is worth it in the end. The pain and the struggle birth this miraculous joy unlike anything else. It also dawned on me in that moment, the God that I say I believe in, the God of creation, condescended himself to Henry's level. That's insane. He birthed himself from a womb so that he could be acquainted with us. And much more than that, he had the brilliant plan that he was not only, it would be enough to say that he came to live in our existence, but he did it for the sole purpose of dying. No other religion gives you that story. He did it for the sole purpose of dying the most miserable, awful death a human being can die. To be like Paul, to be bloody and bit battered, to be left alone so that we could be rooted in him so that we could be like those strong oaks, weathered, beaten, but still standing. Let's pray.